So I was wondering, as we begin, what are some of the spiritual practices in your life? What are some of the, the religions that have in, that inform your life, your thought, your exploration? What are some of those religious sources for you? Yes. Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. Yes. LDS. Or more. Yeah, LDS. Yes. Buddhism. Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Mainstream Protestant. Yep. Judaism. Judaism. Mm -hmm. Paganism. Paganism. Yeah. And that's a whole big umbrella by itself. A pain. Yes, sir. Pantheism. Thank you. Pantheism. Lots of different religious positions. Lots of different religious influences in the course of our lives. Each of us with our own path and our own story of those sources as well. No surprise. I would hope that to say that in Unitarian Universalism, we have a very pluralistic approach to faith and faith development. We draw from multiple sources of religion, of culture, of science as well. We add that to the pluralist experience. We are very much, of course, within a society that is predominantly Christian in culture. Uh, this is why Christmas sends everybody into upheaval in the course of our year, no matter what tradition we come from. We live in, we embody and inhabit a ragged tapestry of tradition and culture and religions. We are just inherently diverse. And in that, the core of our pluralist practice is an understanding of tolerance, of being able to be near one another and live with one another, given the diversity and range of our beliefs. We live with our neighbors, we live with our family, we live with our friends, co-workers, and so on. And that tolerance extends to the political, to the practical, to the spiritual, and much more. Now, I also recognize the profound levels of disagreement, disharmony, damage to one another, and so on. It's not all tolerance, right? We know this. It is a powerful undercurrent of presence in our lives that we are, in fact, so often able to live together. It's a work in progress, this living together in diversity. Been working for, we've been working on this for centuries in the Western world, especially. So I want to go deeper into one story in particular that's part of that foundation of how we have been navigating this exploration, the multitudes of our world for such a long time. So in Western and Eastern Europe during the Protestant Reformation, the world was all up in the air. You had, it began with Martin Luther nailing his 95 Theses to the church door in 1517, and that just set off the world change. And as Lutheran and later Calvinist practices emerged, 
the Catholic Church no longer had the hold that it once did. More people were reflecting for themselves. I mean, it's dangerous when people get to think, right? And good. The religious advisors uh, were as much a part of these efforts as any ruler or any tangible resources, you know, material goods that they were arguing over as well. And it's no surprise that with all this upheaval, then people were also trying to navigate a very much shifting and unsteady landscape of politics and power. And so there was plotting and scheming and changing of alliances and promises not kept and much more. But there was also this additional presence in Eastern Europe that included the Turks and the Ottoman Empire. They had centuries of experience with religious debate and religious toleration in many degrees. And, and you also had Christian and Muslim thinkers talking with each other, exchanging ideas about Christ and Jesus and scripture and the Quran and more. The monotheism of the Islamic tradition was beginning to have an influence in the Christian reformers. There was some interfaith conversation. Because in part what the, the, the Islamic scholars were doing, were looking at the Christian scripture and the claims and kind of trying to hold the Christian scriptures to its own, uh, to its own standard. Like you're saying there's a trinity. We don't see this trinity. That's really interesting. Why do you, why do you see a trinity? Okay. We don't see this Father, Son, Holy Ghost. We see one God and we see Jesus. So geographically, the events uh, in Transylvania is in, uh, also known as Hungary and Romania and so on. It's all this area bordering on the Carpathian Mountains, of which the, what we know as Ukraine is right on the other side. They are all bumping up against each other. And it was fueling the destabilizing and the political maneuvering of the time because in that time, a head of state was expected to tell the people to conform to the king's religion. And if folks didn't abide by this order, they were forcibly converted, convinced to convert, or they were killed, or they were exiled. I mean, religion was a matter of life and death as well as power. And yet, and yet Reformation continued. You had scientists and religious thinkers finding each other, writing, debating, disagreeing, but also encouraging and protecting each other. We saw so many of these in the Polish, Spanish, Italian, Romanian, and many more. So all of this context is where King Sigismund shows up. And it really begins with the story of his mother, Queen Isabella, who is from Poland, she was a beautiful young woman, very attractive in terms of a political uh, alliance. And she entered into a political marriage with an older man. It was kind of a miserable marriage, but she did give birth to one child, uh, Janos, or John Sigismund. And she was very much at the whim of a political shifting, even as she was named regent for his son until he came of age and was able to be a ruler in his own right. 
Now the doctor who served her and her mother was the Italian Giorgio Biandrata. And he was pretty common for the day, a religious as well as a physical uh, medical advisor. Um, and he was one of the many people in the midst of the religious thought. He would, had been in contact with people who were, had preached against, had written against and preached against the Trinity uh, previously and had been killed for it, in fact. But here's Biandrata, kind of encouraging further reformation. And he brought this more human understanding of Jesus. He brought a classic humanism to Isabella and her family. So Isabella and her very young son found themselves caught up in the time in terrible living conditions and all kinds of promises not fulfilled that would make, was making her life uh, very difficult. She was disillusioned by the portrayal of the Catholics who were supposed to protect her. And she was open to religious exploration and finding a way to peace. Now, while she and her son with her family were with her family in Poland because of all this power of play, they dreamed and debated what a new society would be based on religious tolerance. She and her son, John, like they chose a different path. Many people could have were, in fact, choosing revenge, making plans to get back at the people who were awful to them. But Isabella and John chose a different way. They wanted to have a more peaceful possibility. Now, they were finally able to settle in Transylvania, as was intended uh, in 19, uh, 1555. And she was still regent, Beatrice was with them, and also at the time was emerging Francis de Bede in Transylvania as well, who had been, this is one of those guys who kept changing too. He had been Catholic, he was Lutheran, then Calvinist, and then became Unitarian. And acting in her role as regent, Isabella made a first declaration of tolerance in 1557. We talk about John Sigismund and Francis de Bede, but it's the queen who made the big statement first that everyone might hold the faith of his choice without offense to any. That everyone might hold the faith of his choice without offense to any. And as Kendall Gibbons says, it was the first time since the political hegemony of Christendom had spread across the Western world centuries before that a national leader gave back to the ordinary people the authority of their own consciences of matters of God and soul. Queen Isabel did this first. But in the course of things, John took up the mantle uh, after his mother's death in 1559. He was old enough to be received at that point. And Transylvania, like many other countries, had had an experience, had had a long history of religious debate. I think it was partially frankly, form of entertainment, but it was also an important way to sort out matters of faith and practice. So he called for another debate in 1568. And as I said, you get in the room and it's, a, it's in March, in Eastern Europe in 1568. Oh, that had to be miserable. But they started at 5 a.m. and just went on, everybody taking turns as these religious leaders did. 
And it focused on the unity of God. The God is one, Ejaj Istin, as I said in Hungarian, versus the Trinitarians, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it was the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, and the Unitarians. And discourse included all of those elements of debate, the theology as well as practice. And by the end, people felt that Francis Debye had made the case, and so many people converted to Unitarianism. And the king himself accepted that as his faith. But then the king went a whole league further and declared the Edict of Torda in 1568, named four major traditions covered specifically under that edict, Catholic, Lutheran, Calvin, Unitarian, and named freedom of pulpit, institutional freedom of pulpit. And here's a bit of what it says. In this diet, he affirms that every, in every place the preacher self preached, explained the gospel, each according to his understanding of it. None of the superintendents or others shall abuse the preachers. None shall be reviled for his religion according to the previous statutes, and it's not permitted that anyone should threaten anyone else by imprisonment, by removal from his post, or his teaching. You can't get in trouble because of what you say in your position. He says, for faith is the gift from God. This comes from hearing, which hearing is by the word of God. So Sigismund's last great act as king was to name Unitarianism as a protected state religion. And sadly, he died shortly after that declaration at age 29. I think believe there was an accident. Now, the Catholic leaders who came after didn't change the edicts. Those edicts were in place. But they, when they came to power, they declared an end to religious innovation. They declared an end to religious innovation. So wherever the Unitarians were at that time in their theological teachings, that was it. There was no other reformation that was going to be happening that was going to be okay by the state. But Francis Debye couldn't leave well enough alone. I think this is a lot of our history, is people who couldn't leave well enough alone. That he kept thinking, and he kept examining, and he kept exploring. He even got to the point in his religious practice where he would invoke God in prayer, in public, you know, in church. But he wouldn't include Jesus. He wouldn't include Christ. That got in all kinds of trouble. Because that was further innovation. As much as Giorgio Vandrata, who was aligning more with the moderate Unitarians, tried his best to get Francis David to stop, it didn't work. And it got to the point during Francis David's trial for this that 
he was found guilty of innovation and condemned to prison. And Giorgio Biandrata, having been a remarkable religious advisor for some time, he caved in the moment of Francis Stephen's trial. And he erred on the side of safety and pushed the Unitarian Church to be more theologically conservative, in part to save itself. And so by the time all this unfolded, you had Francis W. who died in prison in 1579, 11 years after this great edict came out. And the Unitarian Church in Transylvania was forced into this position of doctrinal stagnation um, that lasted over 200 years. Lasted over 200 years. They could not shift. No innovation allowed. In the West, those of us in the English-speaking West really didn't know much about this whole unfolding of events for quite some time. We didn't hear about this. We heard more about Polish innovation and Italian and so on. We didn't hear about the Transylvanian. Until finally, a teacher from Transylvania brought Francis Dugie's teachings to the West in the 1830s. In the 1830s. Then we started to hear about Transylvania. And in this century, you had the Unitarians and the Universalists who've been developing in the West for quite some time, developing in this country for quite some time, and also kept innovating, kept reforming. And what came together eventually in, I think, really in the 20th century is really when this started, you had congregations from our Unitarian Universalist traditions here in the United States, finally really being in contact with the Unitarian congregations in Transylvania, and having a chance to build relationships with each other. Um, so us encouraging them in their effort to be faith, and them encouraging and informing us, and showing us a whole other way of being Unitarian. Because they really had kept, they've really kept the Christian tradition as a faith. They really are still operating from this Unitarian tradition. So it was interesting when people first started to go from this country to go over to the Unitarians in that country and say, you know, we really actually don't worship very much alike. We really didn't. And but what but we have this lineage and this kinship and how shall we be together? And there's been enormous development since then, including supporting women in ministry. Um, we've had our own efforts to say support women in ministry and theirs were, uh, you know, they got to see us and say, wow, look at all the women in ministry. This looks like a good thing among, among many developments. And the Unitarians were also able to keep hold of certain innovations as well. They, back in the spring, they talked about the Copernican Revolution, where there was a change of uh, what was understood as the center of the universe. You know, 
way back when it was that the Earth is the center of everything. The Copernican Revolution said the Sun is the center of our solar system. And how the Sun-centered solar systems were showing up in graphics and in images and tiles in the Unitarian ceilings in Transylvania from way back when. There was still war in them, even if they had to be outward, outwardly conformed. So I want to offer this story because there's been so many moments in our history where we know that history is not linear. It's not an even progression. There's pockets of progression. There's pockets of disruption. There's multitudes of a hot mess as we're navigating struggles. And here are some of our historic and theological siblings in the struggle. Even, and there's something to be said for hearing how much people wanted and dreamed and wished and imagined, even in a moment of great political upheaval. It helps for me, I won't refer, that it helps remind me how much we are all have the, we all have the potential to be keepers of transformation and tradition in the face of all that is around us, all that is disruptive and concerning in our own world, in any time. So we get to be practitioners of resilience, even as we recognize the history that's come before us, the history that was indeed difficult. We get to do this work together, even as we are facing deep, historic, political, theological conflicts in the news and every moment today. Let us go forth and be such good keepers and such good stewards of these great stories and of our great possibility and our dream as we go forward and keep it alive. Amen.